You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Margot Foster. We wanted to get Margot on the show to share some honest insights into what it takes to, to lead a community movement into something substantial, into something that stands on its own legs and something that includes many people. Um, and that was the back. That was off the back of our last episode where Joe and I discussed the challenges community-led organisations, not for profits, and just change agents face in the current socio-political landscape. Now we just had that conversation with Margot, and and what we what did you take away from that, Joe? Um, oh, a lot. Um, I think the things that you know stay with me from what Margot was talking about was the way that she's been able to kind of use um, metaphor and language to be able to actually describe something in a way that, um, as she talks about, that stops stops the argument. So, you know, rather than, for example, her work in saving um, the, the green heart, of um of the kind of north of melbourne in terms of with the uh, with the convent in abbotsford the way that she talked about that about kind of that it was actually you know this green beating heart for this entire community is a very emotive way to actually play back to government and developers what it is that they're actually about to lose if they enact that change so i was really really struck by that but then also even with like telling telling story in terms of her work with the abc and bringing those kind of those stories of rural australia back into um, mainstream australia and it's something i think you know in life we're we're losing we're losing um people's ability to narrate in a way that people don't argue Mm. to be that bridge between different understandings and perspectives and i think margo does that so well i was lucky enough to work with margo and hear the life that she's lived and she has this common thread that i think joe just touched on there which is the green heart um she comes from the soil up and has fought tooth over nail for the things that she's managed to achieve and i really wanted to have this chat with margo because i think her grittiness determined determination to enact the changes that she has made is is something that we can all learn from i know my generation definitely can learn from um it's a different landscape that we find ourselves in and it's very digital um and a different way to enact change but i think hearing from margot's stories and she's still enacting those things and 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 fighting tooth and nail with a heavy dose of reality as you're about to hear but um Here's to Margot Foster. Here's to Margot. Margot, you've led a life that's kind of, you know, um, full of kind of rich experiences. And what we're really kind of um, hoping to get out of today is really to kind of learn from you. So some of the kind of your story and, but most importantly, I think your thoughts and actually what makes a, a, sustain, a successful as well as a sustainable uh, community-led campaign. And then hopefully get a sense of kind of, you know, what continually actually stokes your fire underneath all of that to actually kind of, one, kind of um, continue the the good fight, but then also kind of ensure that we're actually trying to, um, one, better the environment, but also the lives of the people uh, around you. So um, can you kind of just take us through, um, maybe if you can just share for the listener, kind of um, Abbotsford. So you're talking off air a little bit about kind of um, the soup that you've had, to, had today. But what is the kind of um, feel in Abbotsford today on a sunny day as we actually get out of lockdown here in Victoria? 
Well, Abbotsford's a really mixed bag and um, my, my day started by running down to Victoria Street to have a soup as my first visit to a cafe. And that was fantastic and it was great. It was exciting just to be out and in the world and the shops were opening up and there was a bit of a buzz. Then I came back and I pedalled down to the farm and I picked a great big bunch of silver beet from the community garden. Um, I've processed that, I've picked parsley out of my garden and I've um, been to the library on my bike and I love living here because I'm so close to the river, the farm, which is a, a really, it, it's such a vibrant community hub. I'm involved in the community garden there. I worked as part of the group to save the convent, so I have a special place in my heart for the whole loop in the river down there, the convent and the farm. And uh, yeah, I feel really lucky. I poke a few plants in along the river, little native plants that I propagate at home, and I, it's a really rewarding place to live. And then I can turn around the other way and just decide to go into Vic Market if I want to, or I can um, go into town. And I just feel lucky. I feel really lucky to live where I do. Getting that sentiment loud and clear, um, Margot. <laughs> you've been in Abbots for a long time, from my memory. Um, and Abbotsford's changed a lot in that time. Um, can you take us back to a time in pre-millennia, this millennia, when Abbotsford Convent was um, just trying to decide which way it wanted to head and a, a table coalition formed, which you were part of, um, of local residents that came in and, and fought hard and long, uh, a, yeah. a development. Yeah, it was the the wicked Sydney developers wanted to, to put up this huge, um, well, array of uh, apartments hundreds of them, several hundred, more than nearly 300 apartments on on the convent. They were going to rip the guts out of the heritage listed buildings and they were going to put in a putt-putt golf course and have a gated community and they were thrilled to bits with the potential for this elite development. But it was so much at the heart of the community having been used as, you know, for a range of things since the nuns sold it. But anyway, mm, but can you can you t talk to that? Like, so for people who don't understand what the Abbotsford Comedy is, um, or the Collingwood Children's Farm, as you so well summarised um, when you introduced us to where you live now, it wasn't so much like that when you when the coalition got together. But can you talk about why a coalition got together and found it so such a, a strong reason to fight so hard for for a space to be community owned? Or what was the initial cause? Why were people getting together? Why was it so passionately um, fought? When I moved to Abbotsford, which was, you know, over 25 years ago, it, I used to walk from my place down the river and all past the convent and down to Dykes Falls and back. And it was um, a cherished area. It was something that everybody looked at. I used to sneak in and use the old tennis courts with my friends and we'd hit around on the tennis courts and wriggle out through the fence. Everybody sort of used to sneak in and, and you know, it was a squat at that stage and there were people living in there. It was pretty trashed, but it had the most beautiful garden and it was like a secret place for locals. 
and some people actually remember it functioning um, as a university campus for a while. And so it's had multiple uses, but it was in the hearts of many people just because it was such a rich and beautiful place. It was, I don't know if you've been there, but it's French ecclesiastical architecture. It's one of the rarest sort of surviving um, arch uh, building, building clusters like that that survives worldwide, I think. And it was intact. It was absolutely immaculate. I mean, the tiles were still on the floor. The um, surrounds, the mantelpieces were over the fireplaces. The the stained glass was in the windows and the, the beautiful form banisters within the buildings, they, they were all there. Uh, so when I saw the sign on the fence saying that it was going to be 260-something apartments, I felt, I felt physically ill and I just thought, well, that'll be the end of the farm because the farm has always relied on the uh, carpet. At that stage, it's almost, almost all of its income came from the car park <laughs> and the farmer's markets that they used to run. And um, without that, because the whole parcel of land it's in a loop in the river. We always called it the Green Heart. And so on one side of the bike track is the farmland and on the other side of the bike track in this little loop is the convent. And the whole site was one site because the convent used, used to use all of those river flats to support a community of about 2,000 people self-sufficiently. And so the farm was actually operating as a real farm in those days when the nuns were there. They had horses, they had um, animals, they had chickens, they had market gardens, and they um, it, it operated as a little farm. So it was divided up in that way in the 70s. So that's when the community farm came into being. Um, and the, yeah, and, and the convent gradually fell into disrepair until the developer came up with this plan. So that galvanised the community to say, no, 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 there's a better thing to do. And we formed the Abbotsford Convent Coalition, which was just a, uh, a, a handful, but a good handful. I'm talking about probably, I don't know, I think there was a real core of at least 20 people who met regularly and um, just lobbied through all the usual processes, you know, with the Urban Land Corporation and the council and got a lot of patrons on board uh, along the way. And it was a very successful campaign that had um, success, obviously, in, in, in having their vision realised. But I think we took people by surprise because the mix of people involved in that campaign was so committed and smart and they had the, the range of skills needed to, and we just attracted people who bought those skills into the campaign. So we had financial advisors wandering up to help us. We had um, our conservation architects involved. We had people involved in media who could help us communicate the message. We had so many volunteers who just sat on the bike path and in shopping centres collecting signatures and getting their objections written to council so that they were begging us to stop sending them in the end. 
and we used to always have copies of them and we said they say you don't need to send them you don't need to send them we said no no it's okay we have our own copies as well so that we're just very astute and aware that you had to be on your toes you had to be consistent you had to have a good case but the heart of the success was that it was a solutions-based plan that was irrefutably good and that's what swung us and so as as time went on there were some very significant patrons. So Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, for example, threw in 80 grand for us to run a little campaign office and run the campaign. Um, the Dara Foundation, you know, chipped, oh, I, I won't mention all the ones that contributed because there were lots, but there were very significant people in Melbourne who understood the concept and believed in it. And rather than dismiss us, as a bunch of basket weavers, as the politicians did. Uh, nothing wrong with basket weaving in my view. Um, we, they recognised something that would be a community asset for all people. So that was the clincher for me. I understood how important it is to have a solution. So you can't just say no. no you can't go into any campaign saying no. Oh, and that's that story yeah. rings rings so true. Can you tell us a little bit though? You have obviously a, you had a lot of great minds, heads, and networks in the mix. But when I was chatting to you a little bit about this, I heard that you also had the foresight to engage. I don't know whether it was a mediator or a counselor to come in and help um, help with the community cohesion of that group and talk about what it takes to sustain such an effort. And there was talk. I don't know if. There was talk of having sit-down sessions about how to be open and upfront with each other and deal with, I suppose, each other's egos if there were any or points of difference and how to best do that without ripping apart that obviously very targeted um, campaign that you ran very successfully. Well, it was Jo Kinross who was the heart and soul of the campaign and she was a um, very skilled communicator and she was very attentive to making sure the group was cohesive and yes she did ensure that everybody's voice was heard and that she uh, ensured everybody's talents were used and credited and um, she was assiduous in making sure that there were no divisions within the group and I think that was a, a huge a huge thing. Fantastic. And Margo, so, I mean, beyond um, beyond the green the green heart of Abbotsford, you've also been able to, I guess, kind of bring uh, the green and kind of, I guess, uh, you know, more kind of dusty parts of Australia back to the back to the city as well. So as um, can you talk to us a little bit about kind of the the Bush Telegraph and kind of some of the thinking that actually went behind that? And because there are kind of a, in in my mind, there's quite strong parallels between um, what you've been able to do there with the ABC, but also what you've been able to accomplish in Abbotsford. Oh well, I felt very lucky to um, be involved in the ABC, making some documentaries, and I was drawn towards the rural department when I made a shift from one state to another. And um, I found myself in an area that resonated really, really um, vividly. And it was an area that gave me such scope to talk about so many things. And so when, when we started a new program in about 2000, um, a national 
rural affairs program. We ha we actually create. Well, I was lucky enough to be involved in creating the brief for that program, and the important thing was enabling city folk to have an insight in what was happening in rural Australia. And our commitment was really to getting the voices of people living outside the cities onto the radio because, you know, so often all the commentators are, you know, there's a pool of academics that are the go-to guests and there's the, the politicians. I was very proud to have a virtually politician-free program. I always like to go to the, the source the people who worked on policy the and, and discussions around policies that affected people. But um, it was a wonderful program. I learned a lot about rural Australia. I was lucky to travel and meet people across Australia. And I was really lucky to see how resourceful and clever people are in so many ways on the land. And it, it sort of blows preconceptions about the simplicity of rural life when you look at modern um, agriculture and you look at um, some amazing uh, transformations in land care and regenerative farming and um, sustainable farming and that sort of thing. There's some, you know, I remember doing a, a whole series on carbon farming and this was when it was just an idea in the Rudd government years and um, it was it was remarkable, you know, the, the we we looked at savannah fire control and the and the savings made in you know carbon emissions and that that's gone gangbusters now but it was a very little known and little supported enterprise and it was kind of a wild card in a, in the mix but we we looked at um, sustainable how you could possibly have a sustainable winery and how a dairy is advantaged by sustainability. We looked at um, horticulture and changes in practices that, that contributed because it, often people can't understand how farming can contribute to uh, carbon emissions and how it can be turned around beyond tree planting, you know. So, and, um, and it, it, was, it was kind of using the word um, carbon emissions and climate change because even at that time, when we knew that, it, you know, I remember um, talking to David Spratt, who wrote Climate Code Red, and I think it was 2007 or 8. Um, and this book was the real sounding of the warning on climate change. This is when Rudd was trying to get um, a, a no, it was never a climate a, a Tax, carbon tax. <laughs> no, it's been portrayed as such, it, though. Yeah, but it never yeah, was. Yeah, I know, but yeah. it was putting a price on carbon emissions, which mm -hmm. I think is a fair thing. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, it was using this the words and the language that people had somehow it had become demonised in a media that was oppositional to all of the words like environment, sustainability, climate change. Let me go on, feminism. <laughs> Um, but, but, but Margo, First Nations, right? <laughs> yeah, we can definitely keep the list the list going, no doubt. And, and I mean, what yeah. do you what do you think 
the role because I mean I'm, I'm I'm originally not from Australia. Um, I've seen a very similar thing go on with our national broadcaster in Canada, the CBC. That I certainly think is the agenda that's actually going on with the ABC at the moment in terms of kind of this push to commercialize it rather than seeing it as a cultural institution that tells uh, a nation its story back to itself. So, can you talk to us yeah. a little bit about what you believe the true kind of remit of the ABC is, and what do you think about where it actually? is at the moment and what's actually happening to it? Well, the true remit of the ABC is um, in, the, in the, um, the charter, which I think they're trying to trash. But uh, the charter spells out really clearly the role of each of the networks in the ABC. So that's why you have um, it split up. So people don't understand. There's Triple J or Double J. There's um, Radio National, mm -hmm. there's local radio, there's regional and rural radio. It used to be like that anyway, but they've tried to consolidate it all under a single thing, which has diluted the different bits that are supposed to service the needs of all Australians and their particular needs. So you had the youth channel and you had the classic music one and you had a news channel. Anyway, it got... It was growing and getting bigger than Ben-Hur, but what happened with Radio National, which has always been regarded as the, the snooty left-wing rabble-rousing one, which is just, it's actually radio that makes you think, you know, so there's a lot, there's a real exploration of it's ideas. True. That's yeah. how they branded themselves, you know. It was ideas and it was throwing around ideas. It was going a little bit deeper beneath the surface. So what made Bush Telegraph different on the Radio National Network was that it wasn't just headlines screaming back at you and grabs. It was longer form interviews so that you could get more information out and speak at length about ideas so and engage people in more meaningful detailed discussions on subjects and i like that a lot as as the my time there sort of went through a few changes in the management there was all less desire for that sort of thing and they really wanted a more newsy shorter form which is a bit like the, the traditional country hours, which was um, had a different remit on local radio. But anyway, I um I I'd done my time, so I I was I was out at that stage. <laughs> and I mean, the kind of um, where do you so the kind of the the initial charter of the of the ABC about kind of being, as I understand it, it's about being reflective of a country, right? So it's about each person can see themselves in, in the ABC, but now it's become more a marketing slogan in terms of that it's kind of it's our ABC, but yet the programming doesn't actually speak to all. Is that is that fair to say? Well, look, I've been out away from it for years now, and I, I didn't like the direction it was going, and I've, mm. seen, I've watched it be cut to ribbons so yeah. that, you know, Radio National's, Sadly, I mean, I, I, I listen to Radio National and there's lots that I like, but there's lots that I have to turn off because I can see that it's, um, well, they're, they're programs that don't appeal to me, but also the repeats are mm. relentless yeah. and it's a, it's a, a, there's a lot more live broadcasting, there's a lot more talkbacky stuff and yeah. um, it's a different, it's not doing that kind of detailed research, um, original thinking thing. It's more reactive to, oh, this was in the news, let's do a story on that. 
or let's find out what people are chatting about and what do you, you know, um, which is to me, it's blurry because local radio does that very well. Yeah. I know that's, that's their thing. So I think the original idea for Radio National has been um, watered down a lot and it's been crucified by cut after cut after cut. It's not possible to make good radio. You know, there was innovative radio. Part of the charter was about experimentation and creating new, art, you know, forms. And so there used to be really innovative, award-winning um, soundscapes uh, and art form, really, using radio as an art medium. That, that kind of uh, aspect of radio is really diluted now. Um, and I think they're just leaving people to make their own podcasts. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. And if you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. So, Margot, what... If you had your moment, if your moment was right now and someone asked you, I'm asking you, what is something that we can do right now? If, if we're all in this together, change has to happen. Um, the climate isn't, isn't in a stable space. How can we, as individuals, as collectives, do something that gives agency back to us and makes us feel like we're, we're acting accordingly to, to put change into effect? Yeah, well, look, I'm one of the ones that genuinely lives in a state of grief for the environment and despair over failure to take action on climate change. And in my view, vested interests have actually declared war on the environment and I want no part of that. And so it's been a niggling kind of thing in my mind about seeing myself as a conscientious objector. And sorry, what is a conscientious objector? I can't even say the word. Okay. Um, back in the 60s, and before that actually, in World War II, um, Australia had conscription to international service. That's into the army and the military. And there was conscription in my lifetime between 1965 and 69. And... A conscientious objector was someone who was completely opposed to taking up arms, who didn't want to kill people and who objected to any type of military training and service. And so the conscientious objectors claimed the right for exemption from military service. And it originally, I think it started in America a long time ago or it might have been more widespread than that, but it's based on values. Initially it might have been a religious thing like the Quakers, who couldn't, um, in all conscience, go to war. But then it was widened to be based on uh, values and beliefs ranging across um, religious but philosophical and even political sort of reasons. And it's niggled away in my mind. Okay, so 
how do we do that? I mean, I wish my portion of taxes could be diverted into defending the environment instead of destroying it, you know. I, I, I hate that the government sees people, me, as a consumer propping up this economy that's just based on uh, extractive, dangerous extractive industries and infinite growth and materialism. And I think I'm sick of being treated like, you know, people being treated like hands, this army of cheap labour. I mean, even even in the last week or couple of weeks, the Treasurer has called on us to pump out more babies because they want consumers. That's what they want. So my reaction has been for a long time in a small way to be treat myself as a conscientious objector so the way i do that is to try not to be complicit so i've decided as a a teenage girl to be a bad consumer i i just i hated materialism i hated being treated uh, in that way as um you know, just enriching other people and being sucked into a system that just wants you. you. You are just being played by a system that wants you to consume stuff. And I think the pandemic's actually helped us understand how little we need. I don't want junk. Um, and I think being a consumer, we have to turn it into a powerful tool. And we, I want, I want to just say no. I've said no. I've say, I say it a lot. But you, it's being part of what is might be called the great the new great refusal so in my way i don't take plastic if i could possibly avoid it i don't i buy fresh and local i support small and local people i i've got renewable energy on my rooftop so that that way i don't ever have to give any money to the fossil fuel industry that's my great aim i actually ripped out my gas line so i won't pay them any bills um, I've seen the divestment movement is something else, like universities and student councils got their universities to withdraw any investment from fossil fuel companies. That had a huge impact and then it, 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 it grew like topsy and then there's other big corporations choosing where or where not to invest on ethical grounds. So I think you know, each of us as consumers can, can be part of that. And even this morning when I was tending the veggie patch with my friend Sonia, she just described to me too how she said, I said, how do you survive? And she said, oh, look, I have my world and I just try to control my world. I grow things. I, um, she had a little boy and she said, we just, you know, we put ourselves in a, a really nice, positive, good environment of kindness. And um, that's how I, I too try to be an enabler by doing my homework and being discerning about what I buy, what I don't buy, what I do, and I keep myself informed. Mm. The conscious consumer. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a po it's positive. I know it sounds negative, but it's <laughs> no, it positive is, because. Because there are, you know, people are so clever. There are people dreaming up such wonderful solutions. You know, the people of Yakandanda mm. got their whole town 100% renewable. Um, the, the people of Hepburn built their own 
wind turbine. People are clever. There's all sorts of solutions out there. It's, you know, they talk about yeah. economy. It's not my economy. I don't I want I think that. You've you touched on it earlier economy. as well, and which is a key point from this conversation is chatting about finding your community and doing it together. I think that's what we learned from Yak and Danda and the Hepburn. Hepburn Energy Production yep. site. Like you can't do it all by yourself, but if you can find a small community who want to do it together and shape it together, I think that's where where real real mm. spirit and power lies, and that's where change starts and to happen. Yeah, and that's having those conversations. We've got to talk about it. We've got to, you know, explain why we've made the choices we've made. Don't argue with mm. people, but you can explain what you've made this choice because of that. And someone might go, oh, you know, that makes sense. They, you might sway someone. Yeah, the one thing I wanted to ask you actually is you are an artist in being the bridge of perspective difference. I feel like you can hold space really well and communicate really well with people who have and hold different values and perspectives and manage to have productive conversations. And that's something that we do lack in society at large at the moment um, by design. I was wondering if you had any thoughts, advice on a good way to have thought-provoking conversations that encompass different beliefs and values. Sure. Look, you're taking me straight back to when I was a young uh, teacher and I was posted out to St George in Western Queensland. I was a day late because I went to see a rock concert and it was, I arrived, I was, had had, um, safety pins in my ears and I was covered in badges and I went to this ultra conservative town and in the end I befriended a a fellow called Jim who ran a property out past the Beardmore Dam most lovely man he was a poet and he rode horses and we had so much in common but he used to go off to his national party meetings they that family became my friends for life and even though we were at odds, we, I could sit and talk to Jim about why I was opposed to uranium mining. And he, he would just talk about, he was a natural environmentalist, although he didn't explain his world in that way. But he wrote poems about what he saw in nature and the birds and the animals and this wonderful sense of humour came through. So you, you have to allow people to um, describe their world in their way. And it's remarkable how much common ground there actually is. So it's you can't just write people off because he's arrived at his he arrived at his sort of, you know, national party world, which was the absolute opposite of my kind of more, you know, academic, edu- university educated, um, radical point of view. Um, but we shared so much in common in the end. I mean, I learnt so much from him. And he learned a little bit from me. And we just had a, a really nice friendship. So I absolutely believe that it's possible to communicate with people at all sorts of levels. But you see, if it turns into a big, ugly argument and people get shrill and rancorous, then it's doomed. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think, like, I don't know, I watched a bit of Question Time and I was it disgusts mm-hmm. me. The, the way they behave so I can't you know if that's that's what our poli- our politics is you know everybody should go and just have a look go into parliament get into the gallery and watch them it's horrifying 
there's got to be a better way. And that's why, you know, people like Jacinda Ardern can teach us so much about communicating and supporting community more more fully. Mm. I love hearing your perspective on that because I feel passionately about trying to engage with lots of different people and I love seeing a space where different beliefs and, and point of view come together to either solve something collectively or just hear each other out. It's something that we don't do enough. Margot, when we've chatted, we've done a tiny bit of work together and I've been fortunate enough to hear a little bit of your story, but when I do chat to you and hear so passionately about, about your stories and, and your story essentially where you've come from and how, how you've forged a path in life um i also sometimes pick up on this bitter note and i think we might have just started to hear it then that sits in the pit of your stomach um and i just want to know how how you deal with the hurt i feel like you might have been cursed with knowing too much and knowing too much information before before the world was privy and ready to act even if we're not ready to act right now um how do you continue to keep sort of picking up the sticks and and putting your hands in the soil and and staying centred in your community and continuing to do the work that you do? Well, I've thought, I've, I struggle with this actually because I, I have had information because of my work and I have made it my business to be informed. I treat every election really, you know, seriously and I'm quite nerdy. I like to find out what policies are. But it's really hard to find out policies and then it's even harder to believe them when they tell you that the policy is because, you know, people can say anything they like. So I'm extremely uh, disillusioned, but I must be optimistic because I still think that the world can be sort of better, fairer, kinder. And believing that, I guess, has honed my lens a bit so that what stands out is when it's not that and I see it and it hurts me when I see the environment trashed, when I see, you know, the corruption. I mean, God, we can talk about this week, you know, what did I roll over and open up my iPad and I looked at The Guardian and what do I see? The headline is that um, methane's going off now. So... What we've got now in the Arctic is the release of methane bubbling up out of the sea of Siberia, which means that the emissions are, well, the contribution to warming is 80 times worse than that of carbon for methane. So it's, we're accelerating. That'll be uh, some report will come out next week apparently about that. So that made me sick to my stomach. But it's not as though I didn't know because I was in Russia in 2017 and I saw the permafrost melting across Siberia and I could see, uh, you know, the fish, Omel, the, the, which is in Lake Baikal, is this treasured little fish and that they were just on the cusp of um, running out and banning people from fishing it. I think it's all gone now. I've got, I must have eaten the last Omel. And um, it was, it's just this rare fresh fish that's in this, a small one in this lake. It was just an extraordinary thing. And, and they had glasshouse boats that you could go out onto the lake. And apparently it used to be full of grasses, but there was nothing. It was like a barren landscape on this little tour that we went out on. It was a real waste of time. But it was a, a wake up, an absolute wake up. So I, I, actually, I actually think the frog is cooked. I don't think it's a boiling frog situation. I think it's cooked. And I, I don't think we've got another 10 years to achieve zero emissions. 
Um, I sort of had a glimmer of hope with Greta Thunberg and the mass student movement. So I'm not, I can't be Pollyanna. I can't, um, I can't honestly put on rose-coloured glasses. And I think that the only thing I can do is, um, well, I have to do something. I wrote a, rep I wrote a submission this morning begging the government to protect the food bowl of East Gippsland against a sand mine. Um, so I can't be complicit. So you have to live according to values. I think you have to, um, you have to have information. You have to demand answers. You have to like, oh God, dealing with uh, say Centrelink or um, dealing with any of our public institutions, which is such a battle. You have to actually demand better service. You have to speak out. You have to say what's not right. And I don't know, agitate. People need to, I, I don't know. Do you know? I, you, I wouldn't know. Is there a mass movement? I don't see one. Do people care about social justice? I mean, I, 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 spent, I spent my young years, um, we marched in the streets. We, um, we, we actually joined unions and demanded proper working conditions. They didn't, they weren't there when I was a, a girl. We actually had to um, join unions and demand changed working conditions. It was Gough Whitlam that, um, you know, made all these huge changes where, um, I don't know, there were, he passed an incredible number of bills in his short time, 203 bills in, 19, in 1973. So suddenly I got free university education. Um, I went to a high school, um, my old high school assembly hall to listen to Gough Whitlam and the, the hall was packed, everybody was riveted, everybody was engrossed, they were listening to all the policies and their jaws were on the floor. So there we were, we're talking about an, the education system, free tertiary education. He talked about, you know, creating new Commonwealth agencies like Aboriginal Affairs, um, Women's Affairs. He talked about environment, regional development, um, creating a family court. There was, it just went on and on. Plus the new health scheme, Medibank, you know, it was just this rush of, of vision. And so what was different for me was I, I felt that there could be a better future and the politics at the time actually lit hope in people. And so there was tremendous momentum. So what did I do? I marched for the right to choose. I marched for the right to march in Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. We, yeah, we did. Well, we had to. We had a fascist government and mm. Joe Bielke Peterson, who yeah. had Aboriginal people locked up on missions, needing to get permission to leave and come and go and have their houses inspected. It was disgraceful. So it was a time where everybody felt that they could affect change. And you see, I don't, I don't think it's the same now. And I think with the pandemic, will there be big marches? Will there be big rallies? There's got to be a new solution. There's got to be another way of doing it. Hmm. And I don't know what the answer is, I think, but I, there has to be an answer. And I don't know if it's like the great refusal of just saying, no, nah, 
I'm not playing that game. That's not my economy. I'm not going to participate until you value the work that women do or until you value in, in that economy, unless you account for environmental cost, it doesn't mean anything to me. So I don't know. But you can't just be a hippie and go to the bush and have a small self-sustaining community either. That doesn't seem to work. No, no. I mean, Mind Mar- you. That's what I will be doing next. (laughs) That will be be my. I will find the garden. I will shut the gate, and I will. You will hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And uh, dare I say, a few fish as well, perhaps. Um, But, but, Margo, kind of last, last, last question. I think you know is. If you kind of look back um, through your lifetime and kind of taking this back to when you were when you were 25 and kind of looking looking at this world, I mean, what advice um, would you give that that person now, sitting from where where you actually are today? What would you say to her? To, to me? Yeah, to mm. yourself. Yeah. Oh gosh, no, I would just uh, mm, God, I don't know what I'd say to me. I made a lot of mistakes in my. Ooh. Oh, we all did, Gee. but yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just curious. I, yeah, because it's obviously you've made a huge, you've made a huge impact in in your local community, and then I think also about kind of telling the country back back to itself. So I'm just interested about kind I, of older Margot right, telling younger well, Margot. Well, I would say I would say I should have been braver and mm. stronger. I think yeah. I should have been more outspoken. I um I have been outspoken. I've always been an activist. I can't think of a time when I haven't been responding to what's going on and been railing against the government at the time. But I think, you know, with hindsight, you can you can work out what works and what doesn't work. But in the end, you just have to, you have to live a life based on your own values. Yeah. And you have to um, know intuitively what's right and be prepared to stand up and say it. I think I've also learnt that arguing doesn't actually, if it's, you know, it's like Trump versus Biden, uh, that situation, they're just screaming at each other and nobody's getting anywhere. It's a waste of time. What you've got to do is stick with people who are doing the 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 right thing. Like if people care for environment and if people can bring you new information, seize it, stick together. And um, I don't know, the values that, that enhance each other, community. You need a community, a good community, and you need to build it together. And um, without that, we're stuffed. Thanks, Margot, um, for sharing sharing your wisdom back at yourself when you were 25. Oh, um, and but- and just being open and honest to us here, at, here on the podcast, we really appreciate the time that you've given to us today, but also to a lot of people and a, a lot of environments over your time. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to BAU Business As Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's baupod.co.